The following sermon audio has been brought to you by Christ Church Downtown. For more information, go to Christkirk.com. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 and 2. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Lift up your hearts. Our Father and glorious God, our hearts exalt in you, for you alone are the Lord our God, our rock and redeemer. Who can compare with you the maker of heaven and the earth, the one who spoke the world into existence, who measured the mountains on a scale, who bound the roaring of the seas with a word? You sit enthroned in the highest heavens, and yet you invite us with arms wide open to come and commune with you as your very children, that we might be refreshed at your table, find forgiveness for our sins and instruction from your mouth. We are humbled and grateful. And so we glorify you now, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. As Christians, we are commanded by our God to constantly remember our God, to constantly remember what he's done for us, to constantly remember his mercy and his might. This should be obvious, but that does not mean it's always our habit. The fact is, spiritual amnesia is a disease found often within the people of God, especially in the midst of our trials. If we think back to Israel, to that first generation which God brought up out of Egypt, we're given a perfect example of what we must be careful of, of what we must guard ourselves against. It was not long after witnessing one of the most spectacular events in all of human history. Remember, God split an entire sea in half. He he threw the entire army of the, the world's then superpower. He simply tossed that army into the sea. And yet, it was not long before these Israelites began to, to worry themselves. They began to worry themselves about what they're going to eat about what they're going to drink. Can God feed us, they said. Sure, God can split a sea in half, but can God give us drink? Now they said these things because they forgot who their God was. But what about us? Haven't we known an even more glorious deliverance? Haven't we seen by the eye of faith Christ? Christ wounded for our sake? Christ beaten and scourged, Christ dead on a cross, and then raised for our sake? And then, what happens when we enter into our wilderness? What happens when the gnawing conflict with your spouse suddenly comes to a head? When the balance of your checking account looks, well, awfully low? What happens when your boss drops an unexpected project on your already cluttered desk, when one of your kids reverts back to doing that again, or students when summer comes to a close and all the books and exams and papers are just glaring at you? Is God still 
mighty to save? Is God still good and kind in your eyes? Is God still your strength and your salvation? Jesus Christ did not bring us up out of our sins, up out of the grave, out of the power of Satan, only to abandon you in your wilderness. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Remember him and look to him. In all of your trials, in all of your labors, you have Jesus. And none who takes refuge in him shall be put to shame. Isaiah 64, verses 5 through 7. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways, behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Father God, we confess that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed. Our sins have multiplied and they have darkened our minds, clouded our faith, and made us miserable. We have forgotten you, our rock and our redeemer. We have forgotten how gracious you have been to us all of our days. We have forgotten how you have saved us and carried us through every trial and difficulty. We have forgotten how good a God you are. And forgetting you, we have become anxious and irritable, short-tempered, full of self-pity and grumbling. Forgive us, Father. Forgive us and lift up our eyes to see Christ and the glorious salvation you have wrought for us through him. Give us new strength to trust in your precious and very great promises, for you are very faithful and you are very good. We know that if we regard sin in our hearts and in our own lives, this prayer will be ineffectual. And so we confess our individual sins to you now in Selah. And we ask all of this in the name of your Son and our Savior, in Jesus Christ. Amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. If you have, trusting in the Lord, confess your sins to him, then in accordance with his promise, I declare to you that you are safe, your sins are forgiven you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our sermon text this morning is Ruth, chapter 2, the first 13 verses. There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servants who was in charge of the reapers, 
whose young woman is this? So the servant, servant, who was in charge of the reapers, answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. Then Boaz said to Ruth, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from them with the young man have drawn. So she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice on me, since I am a foreigner? And Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, and how you have left your father and your mother in the land of your birth, and have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work, and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Let's pray. Our Father, you are the God of loving kindness. You are the God who delights to show your favor, to pour out your grace. Father, as we study this word, this story of Ruth and Naomi and your kindness to them, Lord, I ask that you would convince us once again of your grace. Father, that we would know that your mercy that we see here with these women is the same mercy that you are pleased to give to us. We pray all this in Christ's name, and amen. Amen. So we uh, pick back up in our story as Naomi and Ruth have just returned from Beth- or to Bethlehem from Moab. And if you remember from the last couple sermons, it was an eventful trip. Naomi tried adamantly all that she could do to try to convince her daughters-in-law to return to Moab, to go back and to not come with her. And she even prayed that the Lord would deal kindly with them, that he would show his hesed, his loving kindness to them. But here's the thing, back in Moab. He says, go back there and may God give you his loving kindness. And Orpah, the other uh, daughter-in-law, is convinced. She goes back, she turns away. But Ruth is not having any of it. She clings to Naomi and she gives this vow that your God will be my God. Ruth turns to the Lord and trusts that she will find favor, find grace from him. And then when Naomi eventually returns to Bethlehem, she declares that the Lord has not dealt kindly with her, but the Lord has dealt bitterly with her. She says that she went away full, but now has returned empty. And just imagine Ruth, her recently converted Moabite daughter-in-law, standing right there. Yeah, thanks a lot, Naomi. (laughs) Naomi has turned her faith 
away from the Lord. Ruth comes expecting to find grace. She comes expecting to find grace, and Naomi expects to find no grace from God. So when we pick up our story here in chapter 2, our question is, will they find grace? Will they find favor from God and from his people? Right? So it's a little competition. Right? Who is right, Ruth or Naomi? And it's very clear by the end of the chapter as Ruth staggers back home loaded with food that, yes, indeed, she has found grace from the Lord. And it's so much more, so much more than what she expects. So in this sermon, we will see how Ruth finds grace through Boaz, who is a mighty man. And she finds grace in the gleaning laws. And ultimately, she finds grace from the Lord under his wings. So as we're going through, I want, to, I want the main point of this sermon to be that we, can, that we can look at is that when Ruth finds grace in Boaz, all of this illustrates the grace that we find in the greater Boaz. The grace that we find in Jesus who is able to do abundantly above all that we can ask or even imagine. So, chapter 2. Here we go. And it begins with a very important introduction. There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. Great name right there. And that's all I'm going to say. I'm not even going to mention my son the rest of the time. I just did, but that's it. One and done. Love that kid. All right, so we learn right away that Boaz is a relative of Elimelech. He is a kinsman. And we should hear that word kinsman and our ears perk up because we know that Naomi is looking for a kinsman redeemer. And the author is giving this little teaser. Oh, he is a kinsman. But we don't know yet if he is the full kinsman redeemer. Boaz is described as a man of great wealth. From what we see from this chapter, he is wealthy, right? He's got a field. He's got servants. He's got a foreman over these servants. He's able to feed all of these people. He is wealthy, but the phrase uh, in Hebrew, it's kail gebor. It means so much more than a wealthy man. A better translation is that Boaz is a mighty man of valor. Gibor means mighty, brave, strong. It's the same word that is used to describe David's mighty men, warriors. And remember that the story of Ruth is set during the time of the judges. Right? This is still early on in the conquest of the promised land, and there are still battles to be fought with the Canaanites. And perhaps Boaz is a little bit older of a man by now, but he has established himself as a mighty man of valor. Boaz is a mighty man, and he descends from mighty men. And as much of a stud as Boaz is, I need to brag on his grandpa, Nashon. 
Have you heard of this guy? Nashon. That is another great name. He was the leader of the tribe of Judah during the Exodus and in the wilderness. We, get, he, uh, we find him in the book of Numbers. So in the book of Numbers, at the very beginning, Moses and Aaron take a census of all the fighting men of Israel who are 20 years old and older, able to go to war. And the man that God appoints to be the captain, to be the leader of Judah, is Nashon. And we learn that the tribe of Judah had the largest number of fighting men, 74,600 men able to fight. 74,600, right? So you think about it, what kind of man is able to lead this army? He is a champion. And what's more is that when the nation of Israel was to advance, when they were to break camp and go somewhere, God wanted the tribe of Judah to be in the front. Right? So here's the thing, is that when Israel, the nation of Israel marched out, Judah was at the front with the largest army, and who was leading this army? Nashon. He was at the front. But he's also a spiritual leader. He was the first of the leaders of Israel to make an offering to the Lord for the tabernacle. He, and he gave a lot of gold, silver, uh, flour, oil, incense, bulls, goats, lambs. Right? And if you consider that, Israel has been in slavery for the last 400 years and is now in the middle of the desert. I mean, it's pretty impressive that this man has so much to give. Nashon leads in worship and honors the Lord with his wealth, even at his own expense. So this guy is a warrior. This man is wealthy. And Nashon was also from a very prominent family in Israel. Nashon's sister, Elishaba, married Aaron, the high priest, right? The high priest of Israel. So that means that Nashon uh, had a brother-in-law named Aaron and was also a brother-in-law to Moses, the deliverer of the people of Israel. So you just imagine what birthday party gatherings were like in this family, right? Action-packed, I'm sure, right? So certainly, Boaz would have grown up hearing stories about his grandpa Nashon, right? This mighty man. We don't know for sure, but uh, Nashon most likely would have died along with his generation in the wilderness. But Nashon's son, a guy named Salmon, or Salmon, if you prefer, uh, he did go into the promised land. He did go into the conquest. And we know that this man married a woman named Rahab, the harlot of Jericho. That is who Salmon married. And uh, Rahab, she is pointed out as an incredible woman of faith. She makes, makes it into the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 because she hid the spies and she sought deliverance from God and his people. She turned away from her own people, her own gods, to the Lord. And then this faithful man, this godly man, Salmon, welcomed her, loved her, provided for this woman who was an outsider. And it was into this home, 
with this history, with this legacy, that Boaz, a mighty man, grew up. And we can see that the Lord is preparing Boaz to show favor, to show grace to Ruth and to Naomi. So if you remember back that Ruth and Naomi arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So it's the beginning of the time to go out and glean, to harvest. And so Ruth, the Moabitess, notice she keeps being called the Moabitess, she asked for permission from Naomi to go and glean in the field after him in whose sight I shall find favor. She knows that she needs to find favor. She needs to find grace and She's confident that she can find it. Why? Because she is confident that the Lord will provide. She believes that the Lord will show his hesed. And realistically, right, if you're just like, okay, hard facts, let's look at this situation. Is Naomi or is Ruth going to go be successful? Right? And really, it's tough. She's already got three strikes against her, right? She is associated with Elimelech, who is the faithless guy who deserts, right? She is a barren widow, and she is a Moabite who is despised by Israel. But she says, I am going out there, Naomi, and I will find exactly what you prayed I would find, I said, the loving kindness of God. Ruth is acting like her newly adopted God is actually trustworthy. She's acting like God really will do what he has promised to do, despite how everything appears. And this is our faith, our weakness laying down on top of God's strength. So what is gleaning, and why does Ruth expect to find favor while gleaning? So gleaning is gathering up the leftovers of the harvest. When an owner of a field would go through and harvest the crop, he was, he was not supposed to take it all. He was supposed to leave the corners or anything that was dropped or missed during the first round. It says that the margins of the crop are for the marginalized. And Ruth hopes to find favor here because gleaning was God's provision. This was God's provision for the poor, for the widows, the fatherless. We get this from Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. It says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. So what do we learn about the Lord our God? He cares about the poor. He cares about the needy, the destitute, the hungry, and he makes provision for them. And God wants his people to be like him. And he does so by here. Here is the law, right? This is how you love. 
And so often when we think about Leviticus, probably the first word that pops into your mind is not love. Right? We don't think about Leviticus, whew, a lot of L's going to be in here, Leviticus as loving. Right? We think it's harsh or judgy or outdated perhaps. But the law is how God directs his people how to love. And we need this. We need these laws because we are by nature not going to love other people. We will not love our neighbor. And I can prove it with you, prove it to you with just a brief story. Right? Who has ever been to a kid's pinata party? Yeah, so we had a CCD anniversary party a year or two ago, and we had the donkey. A burrow? We had a burrow, a burrow pinata. And when that donkey finally exploded, 50 kids swarmed in, and they mutated into roaring dragons. And they just were like on their knees, both arms, just scooping in that candy, breathing fire. It's like, that is why we need Leviticus. <laughs> that is why we need the law that tells people how to love your neighbor. Right? We are by nature selfish. Right, really, who is going to come up with the idea of don't, don't harvest the corners of your crop? Right, don't harvest as much as you can get. Don't go back and make sure you try to squeeze out as much as you can. Right? We don't think like that. But God does. And God commanded it because he cares for the needy. And that is why Ruth is confident that she will find the Lord's kindness. So in verse 3, uh, the author has a little bit of fun with us. It says that Ruth left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened, she happened to come apart uh, to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. In our English translation, I think kind of whiffs this tran uh, the, the translation where it says, happens. Right? It's much more like the author says, Ruth goes out and gleans, and as luck would have it, she just happens to go to the field of Boaz. Right? Big wink. Right? And we're supposed to do our best cronk impersonation. It's like, oh, right. Ruth went to, their, went to the field by luck. Oh, right. <laughs> right. Was it luck? Of course it wasn't luck. It was God's sovereign hand directing her to the field of Boaz, this mighty man. Verse 4 says, Now behold, Boaz. Just cue some trumpets. Boaz comes out of the city and greets his laborers. The Lord be with you. And you have this field of workers, men and women, straighten up and they reply back to him, the Lord bless you, right? And what a boss, right? I mean that in both ways, right? What a boss. Right? Just imagine Monday morning, your, your, uh, your employer comes into the office and declares, the Lord be with you, and, all, and everyone pops up from their cubicle, right? The Lord bless you. Um, when I say that, I think the closest I get is Andrew Krapuchet coming in, but of course he's on his Segway, um, not helpful, not helpful. But just imagine, what if 
the most prominent man that is in this village of Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah leads people to God. Right? What's his main concern? It's not, how's my harvest coming along? Right? Or even, how are you doing? But he directs, he leads his people to the Lord. Right? And it's so much richer than, you know, hi, how are you doing? Right? So, just throw this out here. If you ever would like to give me a Lord be with you, I will return it with a Lord, the Lord bless you. So, the Lord be with you. Yeah, let's try that sometime. Okay, in verse 5, Ruth apparently catches Boaz's eye, and he asks the foreman, whose young woman is this? And perhaps she is super attractive, or she's super hardworking, or Boaz is a super good boss and notices this newbie. But regardless, he asks a very poignant question in light of Ruth's faithful declaration in the chapter. Whose woman is this? Who does this woman belong to? And he replies, the foreman replies, it is the young Moabite woman who came back from the country of Moab. <laughs> right? The foreman is like yellow flashing danger lights, right? This is the Moabite. He comes, she's coming back from the country of Moab. It's like, uh, all the other Moabites who don't come from the country of Moab, right? Why is he drawing attention to this, right? Because if you remember the history that Moab refused to give bread to Israel when they needed it, and perhaps, like, finally, we get a little payback here, right? Don't let her glean. Or remember, Boaz, that Moab hired Balaam to curse us. Why are you blessing this Moabite? Remember that the Moabite women led Israel away from God and into all kinds of sexual sin and kindled the wrath of God. Beware the Moabites from the country of Moab. Right? That's what would make sense. But Boaz... This mighty man of Israel, this son of Rahab the harlot, shows kindness. He speaks words of grace to Ruth. He says, you will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Right? Boaz is not stingy. He is not trying to suggest that you know, maybe you go off to this other place. But he includes this stranger. And even in his own household. He says, come, work among my women, my household. He promises to protect her. He is considerate to her. Here, come drink this water, my water. You don't have to do anything. Right? Jesus, Samaritan woman. Boaz understands Christian charity, right? He gets these gleaning laws. He imitates God well in how he loves. 
Right? And before we get to uh, Ruth's response, here's like a little, little mini application, a little mini principles as we look at how can we as a church uh, go about Christian charity? Right? What can we learn about how Boaz gave charity to the needy? Right? We've got three, three principles. Move through them quickly. First of all, we will start with the hard one. Christian charity is costly. It's costly. Boaz actually permits gleaners into his field, and this is going to cost him. Right? The directive to the landowners is that they are not to harvest the corners of the field, nor go back to gather up all the leftovers. Right? And, it's, and it's not because their combines couldn't fit into the corners of the field. Right? There were no combines. It was all by hand. Right? It's super easy to harvest the corners of the field. But he says, don't do that. Right? These poor people coming out would literally eat into their profits. Right? They would eat. It was costly. And yet Boaz gives at his own expense. And God loves a cheerful giver, especially when it is costly. First principle. The second principle is that Christian Charity is work-oriented. Charity ought to be work-oriented. When Ruth comes, she doesn't expect a free handout. Gleaning laws require work, and it's actually very hard work at that. Right? When, when Ruth and Naomi hear that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread, they don't come back expecting to have free bread on the corner of every street in Bethlehem, right? They didn't come back in order for the free handouts. They came back in order to glean, in order to work. And this, um, this reinforces the principle that we get from Paul that if you don't work, you don't eat, right? If you don't work, you don't eat. And this is one of the many and major breakdowns of our government welfare system. Our government welfare system often incentivizes people to not work. Some of our political candidates currently are talking about a living wage for everybody, $15 an hour, regardless of whether you work or not. And this reminds me of that proverb that even the mercies of the wicked are cruel. Even the mercies of the wicked are cruel. There is a way of showing compassion that is cruel. God has made us to be workers, to be builders, to be creators, because that is who he is. And so our charity should be work-oriented. And lastly, Christian charity is personal. It's personal. There's an interaction. There ought to be a relationship formed between those who need charity and those giving this. And we see this with Ruth. She asked for permission to come glean. And people are coming into your field, into your property, and then you come to know the name, the need, the story of these people. Because it's personal, you also can be discerning, right? You can be wise. Uh, the foreman was able to give a report that Ruth was an industrious worker. She was a hard worker but maybe not so much on that guy who's just been playing Candy Crush, right? There's a report 
of whether someone is deserving or not. But we can contrast this to the very impersonal bureaucracy of the welfare state. It is very hard to give a cup of cold water in the name of the IRS. So what are the principles of charity? That they are costly, that they are personal, that they are work-oriented. All right, back to Ruth. So Ruth has gone out to find favor, and she cannot believe that she has found such staggering grace from Boaz. She falls on the ground and asks, Why have I found grace in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a stranger? I am that Moabitess from the country of Moab. Look at this humility of Ruth. She is not entitled. She is not proud. She's humble. And Boaz gives a surprising answer. Why are you showing me this kindness? And it says, because I have seen your covenant loyalty. Verse 11, it has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know. So Boaz knows all about her loyalty and her love to Naomi and to her God. Remember, remember that Naomi thought that Ruth was crazy to come with her. You are crazy to come with me and be loyal. But Ruth's crazy faithfulness is the very reason for this kindness, for this blessing from Boaz. And here's his blessing, this final blessing that he speaks to her. It says, the Lord repay your work and a full reward be given to you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. So just very quickly, here are a few words of application. First, we must note God's providence and Ruth's faith. Ruth and Naomi are like Joseph in the Egyptian prison. Right? They have no idea what God was up to at the beginning of the chapter. You know, they couldn't trace out from the beginning how God was orchestrating their life. All these events, their grief, their loss, uh, their shame, their poverty, even the seeming, seemingly random events right, just happened to go to this particular field. But God is working to bring about a truckload of blessings at the end of the day. They both couldn't see it, but the difference between Ruth and Naomi is that Ruth had the audacious faith to believe in God's kindness. She had faith that God would be true. She had faith that is described in Hebrews 11. says that without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he is, and gets, gets this, right, get this, and that he rewards those who seek after him. And once she has received, right, and that's what Ruth does, she goes out, I will find that grace. Why? Because God has promised to give it. And once she received that grace, and she asks a question that every Christian should put to God. Why have I found 
grace in your sight? Why have I found favor? True grace always astonishes the receiver. We know we haven't done anything to earn God's favor. We haven't done anything to merit our status. We haven't earned the gifts of God. But God is gracious. It's like that hymn writer says, While millions make the awful choice, Lord, why was I a guest? Second, notice that God's love to the lowly and despised and the outsider and his desire to to bring his people in to this care, to to minister to the uh, the poor. And Boaz was this kind of man. He was a faithful man. He was a lawful man. My challenge to the men, young and old, is to be like Boaz. And I'm going to go cheap a little bit right here on this application because it rolls into my third point. I was going to say, this is what it is to be like Boaz. But my third point in my application is that Boaz is like Jesus. Right? Here's the charge, men. Be like Boaz, which means be like Christ. Charles Spurgeon referred to Jesus as our glorious Boaz. Jesus is clearly present throughout the story because Boaz is so clearly a Christ figure. So here's just a few that we've come across so far. Boaz is a mighty man, just like Jesus is a mighty man of valor, a wealthy man, a princely man. He is from a prominent family, the Son of God. But Jesus is also a relative to a family who, like Elimelech, has led his wife and his children into the curse and exile and death. And Jesus begins to restore and redeem this family. Jesus is the man from Bethlehem who is Emmanuel. He draws near to his people. He draws near to his people in order to bless them, in order to seek their good. Jesus is the one who fulfills the law and loves a stranger, the widow, the fatherless. And at his own great cost, he shows kindness and mercy. But he's not content just with the bare minimum. He invites these strangers into his household. He gives abundant provision, living water. We are the ones who find refuge in his wings. In Jesus Christ, we find grace. And like Boaz, Jesus is just getting started. Right? We're not even halfway through the second chapter of this book. We haven't even made it through, and, gra- and Ruth has already found grace upon grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this gospel story that once again reveals to us what kind of God you are. That you are the one who is abundantly full of grace, abundant mercy. Father, I pray that we would have that audacious faith, that courageous faith like Ruth to turn to you, to trust in you, to expect that you will be good. Father, we pray all this in Christ's name. And amen. Well, you've heard the expression, we're the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. And that's a fine saying that's intended to connect the gospel with action. But what about God's heart? Wouldn't you first want to be aligned with his heart? 
In the message today, we've heard about the mercy that was extended by Boaz to Ruth, a foreigner. First, Boaz let her glean in his fields, and then among his female workers. And as we heard today, he invited her to, well, we didn't hear it today, we're going to hear it next week, or whenever Ty preaches again. But uh, next, he invited her to eat bread dipped in a wine vinegar with him and his crew. So he invited her to eat with him and his crew. So Christ, as we have, uh, Boaz, as we've been learning, is a Christ figure. He is strong, but he is also merciful and full of grace and kindness. And that mercy and grace are highlighted in the invitation, not just to glean in his fields, but to join him in a meal of bread and wine, symbolic that she is no longer considered estranged or alone. At Pentecost, when God's spirit is given to the world, what was peculiar about that story? You remember that there were devout Jews and proselytes from all over the known world worshiping in Jerusalem. And when they came to see the commotion involving the disciples, they were amazed. Why? Well, besides maybe the lightning coming out of their hair, as Ty described, uh, the wind and the noise, the text says that each one heard the message of the good news about Jesus in their own dialect. So, while the scattering of the people of the world was a result of sin at Babel, or Babel, the restoration of the world started in Jerusalem involves seekers after God hearing him speak to them the message of salvation in their own heart language. All these foreigners, 13 separate dialects were mentioned there in, in Acts. But it doesn't stop with the invitation. The same multilingual people were challenged to believe and be baptized, and more than 3,000 plus their families heeded that call. But it doesn't stop there. Then they met together to hear the teaching of the disciples. They joined with other believers to break bread together in fellowship. Men, women, Jews, Greek, young, old, slaves, free, all one body united by and in Christ by his strength, mercy, and grace. This is the heart of God, that we might be of one heart and mind as the Father, Son, and Spirit are one. And this unity, this unity of all these different people from all these different nations, with all these different kind of socioeconomic, everything being different, all these foreigners. All this unity is uniquely pictured in this ceremony of communion. We eat the same meal together. We drink the same drink together. We see one body, the body of Christ, together as one. And so come and experience the heart of God. Let us pray. O oh Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for your perfect sacrifice on our behalf. Thank you for placing us in one body. Christ. Lord, remove any barriers to unity in our hearts as we commune with you in this meal. Align us with the intents of your heart and equip us to serve you acceptably and with reverence and godly fear that we may see this world saved. For we ask it in Jesus' name and amen. So when uh, King Solomon built the temple, there were two massive pillars that were the very front of the temple. These were like 30 feet high, 6 feet uh, 30 feet high, 6 feet deep. And the name of one was Jachin, and the name of the second was Boaz. Right? And these were the supports of God's house. They were there uh, welcoming people into the house of God to worship. And Peter says that we are living stones being built up as the spiritual house of God. So if you want to know what kind of material God, the master craftsman, used to build his pillars of a house, look at Boaz. Right? So here's the charge. If you want to be a pillar in God's house, be like Boaz. 
Now receive with believing hearts the benediction, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.